Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, February 10th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I am made nervous by excessively handsome world leaders and newsmakers. Wait, Mike, a distrust of the excessively handsome? Isn't that the pod calling the kettle black? Aha, I said excessively handsome newsmakers, not largely agreeable news reactors. No, wait, Mike. I just meant that you're visually reminiscent of a dark earthenware cauldron. Thank you. I will take it because that's good for making soup. No, I'm thinking of Hervé Falciani, former Swiss banker who blew the whistle on the banks and blew by the crowds at Fashion Week who swooned. So I saw this guy. He's responsible for what's being called the biggest bank leak in history. Saw a picture of him in the Wall Street Journal today. I have seen pictures of him before. And maybe because in those other pictures, he's wearing like a weird paisley shirt or something. He did nothing for me. But today, He was dressed in layers, and they captured him mid-stride as he was glancing to the right, but walking forward, which simultaneously says purposeful but attentive. And it was as if this guy were posed by a GQ stylist, and I immediately didn't trust him. Then there's Axel Kisseloff, the Argentinian economics minister. Handsome, handsome enough. But the sideburns, like bayonets they are. Do I trust him? The Argentinian default says it all. Greece has just elected a leader described as boyishly handsome. Alex Tsipras, will his good looks spell doom for the Greeks? I think not, and here's why. He's actually not that good looking. Sure, he's fine, but he's got a prominent brow and a little bit of a unibrow to make that stand out even more. He's bedraggled, not the kind of bedraggled where it looks like he just rolled out of bed, but bedraggled to be a little off-putting, right? Also, he's a terrible dresser. I mean, he usually goes without a tie, but wears a suit, so he's Ahmadinejad-esque. So the Greeks should be safe. They are not being led by a pretty boy. So why does this matter? Well, I was reading about Abraham Lincoln and how he looked. Uh, Richard Reitman Fox has a new book out called Lincoln's Body, A Cultural History. One of his theories, he writes, 19th century Americans took for granted that what was etched on a person's body gave a good inkling to what lay grooved within. And then Fox quotes an unnamed art critic in the uh, New York Tribune in 1866. Listen to this quote about Lincoln. Time left all its bitter dealings with him written on that scarred and weather-beaten visage. People do not want a nice portrait, nor a handsome portrait, nor an ideal portrait. They want to say, this is the man who suffered and died in our cause. Show us the grim features, the shaggy head, the beetling brow, the big nose, the great mouth. What do we care for this homeliness? His soul transfigured this scarred and craggy face as sunset strikes against a mountainside and changes rugged cliff and black ravine and darkest wood into golden or rosy cloud. 
Put that on your OkCupid profile, Lincoln. On the show today, I will spiel about McDonald's in facts and phrasing and kick-ass deadly commando weathermen. But first, the U.S. has announced its national security objectives. Yes, consider that the lead. The national security strategy is a document that lays out how America sees the world and what it's going to do to keep America, Americans, and American interests secure. The White House defines it as the NSS is the blueprint for America's leadership in the world. Leadership. I will now read six, the exactly six bold-faced phrases within the document. Lead with purpose, lead with strength, lead by example, lead with capable partners, lead with all the instruments of U.S. power, lead with a long-term perspective. The document was, of course, criticized by Republicans for showing President Obama's lack of leadership. (laughs) Joining me now is Slate's Fred Kaplan. He writes the War Stories column. He's also the author of The Insurgents, David Petraeus, and the plot to change the American way of war. Hello, Fred. Hi, Mike. So, Fred, you read this document. It's 29 pages. I Mm -hmm. I only read the six boldface. No, I read it too. (laughs) But what was your – do you have any impressions other than pretty pro forma – sort of like when a company issues its uh, internal memoranda? Well, that's how these national security uh, statements have been in the past. They're sort of congressionally mandated, obviously committee-written, boilerplate. But I think these guys do take this sort of thing a little more seriously. Part of the problem, no one country can really have as much influence as it used to. For example, in the old days, when, when, when the Russian bear was, was looming over the horizon across the German, East German border, sometimes a lot of countries w- would sort of go along with us, even when it wasn't in their interest to do so, because they feared the alternative more. Uh, they needed to side with one superpower or another now, there, there, there is no more Cold War. There are no more superpowers. A country can sort of pick and choose among what ally it wants for what particular scenario. Egypt can join the West, but it can still tell us to go piss off every now and then when they disagree with us. Mm-hmm. So the, the president just has fewer levers to pull than he did in the old days. Well, I would assess what the president has done with Russia, with Syria, with ISIS, even with Ebola as having been successful, only maybe it doesn't seem as stark as having committed troops. There is a difference between committing troops and saying, let's play this out in a smart way. And in, given the uh, you know culture of Washington or the press, it seems like a harder thing to do to be a little bit patient. Being right takes longer to show that you were right. There's no patience in the uh, in the in the news cycle, Mike. What, what you, you know, you have to think back. I mean, God, you know, if there had been cable news during the Battle of the Bulge, yeah, you know, we, you know, there would have been pressure. We need to pull out right now, or or Franklin Roosevelt is is a wimp. He needs to step up. Cause, you know, it was a disastrous, you know, thing for for quite a while. That there is no patience. I would say on Syria. The the one place where I think Obama really overstates his case is saying that he has a coherent strategy in this part of the world when when he really doesn't. I mean, there, there are a series 
of smart tactics, I think. But but when you run into a situation where, where you know, it's not like American clients versus Soviet clients. These are independent bodies. They might happen to be allied with us or with Russia or whatever, but it's completely opportunistic. It's like a game of Go. This isn't checkers or chess. It's Go. It's going on on six different levels or however many levels Go is on. Although, uh, is there is a coherent strategy? Well, sure, a coherent strategy is possible. You know, let's bomb everyone or let's get let's yeah, get involved. What's the Obama appealing version of a coherent strategy. I mean, can you even articulate? A few years ago, a book came out about George Kennan, and everybody says, Where's the George Kennan of today? You know. George Kennan, the diplomat who basically wrote the policy of containment. I don't think George Kennan would have been able to figure this out. You know, Les Gelb, who, who is a friend of mine, and I, and I respect his opinion, but he, came, he wrote an article a while back where he said Obama should fire his entire national security team and replace them with. Henry Kissinger, Brent Scowcroft, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you know, with, with all due respect, with all due respect, what do Henry Kissinger and Brent Scowcroft know about dealing with non-state actors? What do they know about dealing with, with, a, with a system, an international system? It's not even the Congress of Vienna with five major powers. It's essentially bordering on anarchy with a lot of powers aligned in many different directions and who the primary actors aren't even affiliated with the state. This is brand new territory. And, you know, as for Kennan, if, if you read this biography that came out a couple of years ago, the fascinating thing, during World War II, Kennan went back and forth from Europe to Washington about six times, and he took a boat. You know, this was like a two-week journey. And what did he do on this boat? He read. He read Gibbon. He read Russian history. He wrote long letters to his sister, which we now see in retrospect were sort of the, the kernels of, 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 the, of the major essays he wrote right after the war, you know, the Mr. X article in Foreign Affairs and the long telegram outlining what our policy toward Russia should be, which, which kind of was the essence of containment, our Cold War policy. Nobody has time to think in Washington anymore. Nobody has time to read Gibbon or, you know, essays about Lenin or, or long books about the rise of, of ISIS to figure out what is going on there. That, and that's, you know, this is a problem of government. You, you look at guys like Obama and, and his, you know, the staff, they're exhausted all the time. You know, you or I would not be able to, to work under this schedule. And then to demand that you have to come up with a grand strategy as well, for a completely new world, I mean, a world whose structure has almost no resemblance to the structure that was in place even 20, 25 years ago, it might be asking a lot more than anybody can manage. So we saw that it took, it is taking the Obama administration years and years, we're six years in, to unravel the policy choices, war choices of the previous administration. How long will it take the next president to fly in the face of what he's saying now? Well, you know, this is my big worry. You know, when he starts talking about going after ISIS wherever it is and viewing them almost as an existential threat, you know, looking at what he has said and done, I'm pretty convinced that Obama is not going to put combat troops on the ground in Syria or Iraq even. I'm pretty convinced of that. But his successor, I don't know. And even someone like Hillary Clinton, 
who is more hawkish than Obama. I mean, we, we've seen in many of the memoirs and so forth that to the extent they disagreed when she was his secretary of state, in almost every case, she wanted to take the more hawkish option. So, yeah, I, you know, and Kennedy, you know, he, he went right up to the line between advisors and combat troops in Vietnam, but he always insistently turned down the recommendations by his secretary of defense and his generals to put in combat troops. Uh, Johnson didn't. Johnson carried forth. So, yeah, my worry is some of the logic that Obama has laid out, it's combined with his restraint, but someone could take the same logic without his vision of restraint and the limits of American power and uh, get involved in a, in a really damaging, suicidal way. Fred Kaplan is Slate's War Stories columnist. He is also author of The Insurgents, David Petraeus, and The Plot to Change the American Way of War, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Thank you, Fred. Thank you. The gist is sponsored today by Stamps.com, and you have heard me say it before, going to the post office takes up valuable time, especially when you run a summer camp for teenagers. Not that I've ever run a summer camp for teenagers, but you know who has? A gist listener named Matt Pines, who heard about Stamps.com on the show. Matt runs something called Maine Teen Camp in Porter, Maine. We're a general interest summer camp, you know, kind of what you would think of as a traditional Maine Summer camp, you know, lots of water sports, lots of land sports and the arts. You can probably tell that Matt Pines is not a native of Porter, Maine. He's Australian, but he needs a lot of real U.S. postage because, as it turns out, you send a lot of mail when you run a summer camp. A lot of postcards, actually, like and, and especially newsletters and billing statements and reminders, you know, as we're getting close to the start of the summer, you know, you got to send out those reminders like, yo, we need that medical form on file. And when you run a small business in the woods, it can be hard to get to the post office. Our local town, Porter, it's not a major metropolitan Port- area. Porter, Maine isn't. Safe to say. <laughs> <You're saying. laughs> and so, you know, the post office closes at lunchtime. And so if you don't time it right, you can go down there and find that you've driven into town for no good reason. Matt uses Stamps.com to avoid these trips to the post office and to print official U.S. postage right from his desk using his computer and printer. So that's just another reason to say, okay, we'll keep it all in-house. We've got the printer. I can always just get online, buy some more postage, print them up. Boom, done, you know, move on to the next task. So right now you get a special offer, no risk trial, and a $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. Don't wait, go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That's stamps.com, enter the gist. Know the weather Sun Tzu advised in 320 BC, your victory will then be total. Especially true to the American warrior. In fact, you could argue that if not for the vagaries of weather, there might not be an America as the Continental Army snuck away from the British during the Battle of Brooklyn, thanks to the cover of fog. But weather as a knowable variable on the chessboard is a relatively new phenomenon. And the warrior culture of the military doesn't always take kindly to counting meteorologists in the same ranks as the rest of them. One Air Force general thought the Air Weather Service was as outdated as the Polish cavalry. But now there is a new story in military 
Meteorology, the Special Operations Weather Technician, the SOTI, commandos who could tell when the sky will be full of rain in order to rain hell from the sky. Tony DeCopel, a reporter with the NBC News Investigative Unit, has put together an impressive package on the uh, military meteorologists. It is up live on NBCNews.com. And hello, Tony DeCopel joins us. Hello, Tony. Hi. So, the Department of Defense's commando forecasters, the SOTIs, how did you even find out about these guys? I was talking to a weatherman, uh, and weather guys know about these folks because weather guys get made fun of for being geeky, and they, so they take pride in the more warrior of their stripe. And they said, uh, someone told me, you know, a weather guy was the first one on the ground in the Bin Laden raid and the last one to leave, and I was like, get out of here. So then I started looking around, and I was like, sure enough, there was this group called Air Force Special Operations Weather, uh, but it had been kind of a small thing over the years. Uh, no one paid much attention to it. It was made fun of. And then I noticed this like obscure notice in 2008 where they had revamped the program. New career code, the first of its kind, new funding, new training pipeline. And I thought, huh, there's nothing on this other than this little notation. What could it be about? And then after many, many months of working on it, I got the access I needed, hung out with the guys, and was able to write this piece. And they're the Gray Berets, which I love, gray because of uh, cloudy weather. Exactly, yeah, the gray berets. And so when you say that they were looked upon as a little geeky, that was even within the military. It really does seem, through your reporting, that they weren't given their due. You write about guys who, because of their forecasts, could be responsible for, like, 1,200 kills, and this guy wasn't even given the proper ammunition when he was serving in Vietnam, right? There have always been people in the military who do uh, weather reports in enemy, enemy territory. But throughout the history of the military, that person began as a desk meter, meteorologist. So you would take a guy who was like, oh, I'll join the Army or I'll join the military, and sat at a desk and did satellite weather reports. And then at some point, usually by random selection, literally names out of a hat, they got told to go to jump school and they became commando. So they were terrible warriors and everyone knew it, and so they weren't used much. And so in 2008, they made this change where they, they reversed it. Instead of being a meteorologist first and a warrior second, instead of taking the geek and trying to teach him how to shoot and be a killer, they started recruiting killers, athletes, really tough guys who happen to be bright, and then they crammed their head full of meteorology, and they started dropping those guys into war zones. And you even note that uh, other than the code breakers, you have to score the highest on the test to be a military commando. Yeah, you have to be seriously bright because they, they do the equivalent of a, of a two-year degree in one year, a two-year weather degree in one year at Keesler Air Force Base, and they just get their heads totally, totally filled. So why is it important for them to be good warriors other than to earn the respect of others in the military, which can't be the official reason? Because unlike other special operators, unlike the SEALs or Delta Force or any of these guys you've heard of, these weather guys attach to all branches of the military. So I've seen their lockers, their locker room, they have these big cages, and in their cages they have every uniform for the different types of military operations, because at any time they could get called and attached to one of those groups. And so if they get called by the SEALs for some sort of mission that, that is weather sensitive, they have to be able to hang with those guys physically. Intellectually, they have to be able to read the sky and do the calculations, and by the way, they have to be able to do it even if their computers break down. They have to be intellectually up to it, but they also be, have to be physically capable of running with the very most elite people we have in, in special operations. Well, what are the physical demands of being a SOTU? 
Uh, geez, you have to do a 500-meter swim very rapidly. You have to do two 25-meter underwater swims, timed pull-ups, sit-ups, push-ups, and that's just to get into the pipeline. And then the pipeline has its own hell week, uh, and then they do this like really crazy psychological stuff where they throw you into a water with various limbs tied, and you, they try to see if you're going to panic. You do basic calisthenics, anything that, that uh, deprives you of um, oxygen, with a guy standing there spraying your face with a hose, just so you get the, just so there's like a, slight, a tiny uh, sensation of, uh, oh, I'm going to die here. Uh, and they see who cracks. And then if you make it through that, then they start teaching you stuff. And that's a whole other level of physical and psychological um, turmoil. Like they throw you out there in the middle of nowhere in a hole with a bottle to piss in. And if you crack up or you decide it's not for you, then they know. Most people never get, never get qualified. And then if you get into the pipeline, it's two years long. It's the longest in the, in the Department of Defense. Only one in five uh, make it out of there. Now, as an NBC employee, I'm sure you have ample respect for Al Roker, but even he never had to go through that sort of training. I uh, know. <laughs> <laughs> Sam uh, Champion, yeah. Mr. G, none of these guys. <laughs> because I guess the point is that they really do have to go in country and they have to really make calculations in some pretty hairy places and they might have to kill people. More importantly, they have to stay alive themselves because, and this is totally true, every single special operations mission begins with a special operations weather report. It is the first slide on every mission brief. And very often that report is the result of somebody not in a room, not in a climate-controlled room, but dropped by a helicopter in some remote location. They call it the ground truth. You would think that we live in an era when you can just look at a computer program and understand every granular detail of the atmosphere or the weather, but that's totally not true. We're basically weather blind in most of the world, and so we drop human beings in those places to get the weather. And we're, we were especially weather blind in Afghanistan because the Taliban kicked out all the meteorologists, as you reported, and considered them sorcerers. So we were basically inventing the meteorology infrastructure for Afghanistan. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, 600 professional meteorologists uh, fired, you know, reportedly some of them beheaded uh, the meteorological authority in Afghanistan. Things are torched. There's a bullet hole through the rain gauge, seriously. Uh, and so the, the military is like, okay, well, we're going to launch an invasion. How do we know what's going on? I mean, we've got all these big planes. We don't want a, a disaster. Uh, so I actually talked to the guy who was the, the, the best of the best they had in the old South Tea program. And uh, they dropped him into Afghanistan in a team of five people, and he hiked to a position on a mountain, and for days he did the weather so he could get it exactly right. And then when we invaded, it was on his call, conditions favorable. What did you find out? So the original colonel, the original germ, was uh, the first one in, last one out for the bin Laden raid. You, f you flesh that out at all, or is it still super top secret? It's super top secret. I'll, I'll, I didn't flesh it out other than I know that there was a guy in the flight path and there was a guy in the vicinity of the building. Uh, they do something called overwatch. So something that satellites cannot see for sure is fog that comes in like 5 a.m. and is really low or something, you know, like hugging the ground type fog. Uh, and so there's something called overwatch that Southeast will do. Well, they'll just get a position on the top of like a bowl and look down into a city or into a house, and they will want to know hour by hour by hour what the conditions are. And it's not just uh, visibility, it's also these helicopters, when they come in, they, re they require a certain thickness, a density of particles in the air in order to, to, to stay aloft. And the, the gradations can be very, very fine. Tony DeCopel, a reporter with NBC News, the investigative unit, his huge series on the new generation of military weathermen called Send in the Weathermen is on NBCNews.com. Thank you, Tony. Thank you very much. 
And now the spiel said with a grimace. McDonald's has hit hard times, as you know, and I'm going through the three stages of grief, denial, mockery, contemplation, and then I'm doing them all over again because the stages, like McDonald's food itself, tends to repeat on you. McDonald's is in its worst sales slump in a decade. After 14 straight months of flat or declining sales in the U.S. Same-store sales in the U.S. have fallen for more than, more than 2% last year. And five straight quarters of negative growth. But why has McDonald's been doing poorly? Why? Well, the theories abound, and they're all correct. McDonald's isn't really special. McDonald's has too many menu items. McDonald's is seen as unhealthy, very unhealthy. Look, I feed my kids. All right, I'll just say it this way. Here's something I've literally once said to them. Why do you need a ring pop? Wouldn't a lollipop be just as good? Under the theory that junk food isn't great, but junk food that you wear on a finger is an order of magnitude worse. Like, listen, you can eat it. Just don't eat it and accessorize with it. And my attitude towards anything organic is like my attitude towards an upgrade at the Hertz counter. Yeah, if you're out of compacts, I'll take the standard size, but I ain't going to pay for it. So even me, a dad with the nutritional vigilance of a goat, has basically two solid consumption rules. One, water is better than juice. And two, I've never given the kids McDonald's. We once ate at a Burger King, French toast sticks. I figured... Can they really be so much worse than the French toast sticks I give them at home? But we have literally never eaten at a McDonald's. And that's a big reason why McDonald's is failing, because it has become synonymous with unhealthy. But actually, I think it's failing because it no longer holds the American mind share for good and for ill. Now, maybe this is a question of what came first, the McNugget or the Egg McMuffin. But I do see and hear a whole lot less of McDonald's as the go-to example of hugeness or unhealthiness or even Americanness. Now, some of that must be just that McDonald's doesn't loom as large. We've heard about the sales declines. So the decline in McDonald's references is a reflection of McDonald's decline rather than a cause of it. But I think it also works the other way. Hear me out. In 1999, Thomas Friedman proffered the Golden Arches Theory of Foreign Policy. No country with a McDonald's has ever gone to war against another country with a McDonald's. Now, as it turns out, that was a great label, but a terrible idea. Sort of the opposite of the name McGriddle and the list of ingredients on the packaging to the McGriddle. Anyway, after Friedman came out with that, NATO bombed Yugoslavia, India and Pakistan and Kashmir, Russia in South Ossetia, Russia in Crimea. These are all McDonald's against McDonald's countries. So the fact that the theory turned out to be wrong is a big reason why you don't hear about the Golden Arches theory, but you don't hear McDonald's used in theories as much anymore. In 1995, there was a bestseller called Jihad versus McWorld. It was about the struggles between tradition versus globalization. Remind me, McDonald's used to be the very shorthand for globalization, but now it's Wall Street they want to occupy, not a McDonald's. And many politicians come in for much more vitriol than Mayor McCheese ever did. You don't hear so much about the McJob, the term popularized by Douglas Copeland, who also coined Generation X. One of those labels stuck, the other slipped away like a greasy sausage patty off the styrofoam hotcakes containers of my youth. Then there's the movie Supersize Me. Morgan Spurlock made his name by eating McDonald's every day for a month. But that movie came out in 2004. Would McDonald's be the target today? In this age of the KFC Double Down, which is bacon and cheese surrounded by fried chicken fillets as bread? In this age of Carl's Jr.'s? In this age of Pizza Hut? 
For a limited time, get the ultimate crust flavor with the triple cheese covered stuffed crust pizza made with premium cheddar aged Asiago and Parmesan. Wouldn't supersize me more likely be stuff my crust in 2015? And just as McDonald's as social panic has receded, so has McDonald's as punchline. Remember the old SNL game show parody with Jerry Seinfeld? Chicken McNuggets for a hundred. Could somebody explain these things? Who are the ad wizards that came up with that? I want to know what part of the chicken does the McNuggets come from? That is right, we would have also accepted. If it comes from where I think it comes, I don't want to eat it. Well, that was 1992. Here's what SNL parodies now. When we take a deep-fried gordita shell, smear on a layer of our special guacamolito sauce, and wrap that around the outside. This is pretty big. It gets bigger because we bake it in a corn husk filled with pico de gallo, then wrap that in an authentic Parisian crepe filled with egg, gruyere, merguez sausage, and portobello mushrooms. McDonald's has retreated from the cutting edge of excessive consumerism, and they lost their edge, and now they're losing their consumers. The other week I saw a news item, and it was that McDonald's is planning to operate out of a villa in China once owned by revolutionary Chiang Kai-shek. There was some panic, there was some outrage, but 10 or 20 years ago, think about all the accompanying hand-wringing. Or maybe that wasn't hand-wringing. Maybe that was just feverishly trying to wipe the grease off. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi came up as part of a crack commando squad of makeover experts. Just intern Claire Tennisgetter escaped to the Los Angeles underground after being part of a paramilitary cooking segment unit. Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcasts, was part of a jackbooted shock troop of animal trainers specializing in urinating, defecating, and scratching, biting, and rubbing trees. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, lived for 12 days in a Laotian jungle, surviving only on his wits and traffic and weather together on the sevens. You can go to iTunes to subscribe to us. Give us a review if we're there. I always say that. I really do mean it. Guess what? I read the reviews whenever someone calls me a kettle. Go to slate.com slash just email to sign up for our daily email that will tell you when the show is up. Download the app Yo and then subscribe to podcast for a similar thing that the email does. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. I'll put up some pictures of these pretty politicians. And you know what? You could call me a mercenary. You could call me a soldier of fortune. But I prefer the term wacky sports blooper freedom fighter. So bury me with my boots on and scatter my ashes on the trampoline that the gorilla jumps off of to complete his dunk. Thanks for listening. This is Josh Levine, host of Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen. On this week's episode, we talked to Jonathan Hawk about his new documentary of Miracles and Men on the Soviet perspective on the American hockey team's Miracle on Ice at the 1980 Winter Olympics. You can subscribe to Hang Up and Listen at iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts.